All right. Well, it is a new year and a new season of Prescribing Your Career Success, the only podcast for residents and medical students looking for the inside track to career success, presented by Provider First Recruiting. My name is Tyler, and once again, I'm really excited to be able to join you, our listeners, but also to welcome Dr. Ryan Leahy. Dr. Leahy is a non-invasive cardiologist in private practice in the Chicagoland area. He's a native of Chicago, graduated with honors from the University of Illinois College of Medicine, where he earned dual MD and PhD degrees through the highly competitive NIH-funded Medical Scientist Training Program. His research focused on how changes in fat and carbohydrate metabolism affect failing hearts. He completed a residency in internal medicine at Northwestern University and a fellowship in cardiology at Columbia University, one of the top cardiology departments in the country. Dr. Leahy has spoken at national and international conferences and has made dozens of publications in leading scientific journals, and his work has been featured in popular mainstream outlets, including Time Magazine. Currently, he is, his, excuse me, currently his clinical work has a special focus on the prevention of cardiovascular disease and on the use of advanced imaging for the diagnosis and treatment of multiple cardiovascular conditions, including coronary artery disease, structural heart disease, and cardiomyopathy. So, Dr. Leahy, thank you so much for joining us today. Well, Tyler, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. Yeah. So I think we'll just jump right in. Um, the first thing I want to know is, is what led you to medicine? What made you, you know, what was the childhood dream that made you want to be Dr. Leahy? I've gotten this question a lot, and my honest answer is that I don't really know when I began wanting to, knowing that I wanted to go into medicine. So I tell people I kind of have always wanted to be a doctor for as long as I can remember. Um, I've always done well in school, which is prerequisite for getting accepted to medical school and succeeding as a physician. And I've always had a genuine desire to, to continue to learn and to help people. And I can't really think of any field or profession that I'm better suited for or happier in than the one I'm currently practicing in. Nice. What do you think was the, what was it about cardiology that spoke to you as you were considering that as a career path? Yeah, two things come to mind. First of all, I have a very strong family history of heart disease that runs in my family, uh, particularly from my father's side. His, his father died uh, complications from a heart surgery when I was in college, and several of his uh, brothers and sisters are currently uh, struggling with heart problems. Luckily, uh, my father's pretty healthy, but seeing that pop up in my family tree over the years uh, motivated me to go down the path that I'm currently in and a passion for physical fitness and just healthy lifestyle overall, I think, attracted me to cardiology, which 90% uh, of cardiovascular disease is preventable with healthy habits. And as someone who ran cross country and track for four years in high school and four years uh, in college in, in the NCAA. Um, I've always had a, a very strong interest in maintaining physical fitness and for not only for myself, but kind of as an example to my patients. Nice. Yes, I'm uh, exhausted just hearing about some of that. So uh, I think uh, it's great, though, that you're putting the importance on what we can do and, you know, to help a alleviate some of the risks we have. And as I talked about in your introduction, you know, your focus on research and finding ways to make this as preventable as possible, I think is very admirable. 
So now that we're, you know, kind of in the middle of talking about what it, you know, what it's like to be a doctor, why you chose that, what was your, um, what was residency like for you? I mean, residency is challenging for sure, for even uh, the most talented up and coming physician. Uh, the time commitment is is very grueling. It will test your uh, your intellectual abilities. It'll test your personal life to a certain extent, um, but it can also be very rewarding and very fun. For me, I think the most rewarding part about residency was finally getting to put all that book knowledge to practical use. You spend four years of medical school on top of all the training and schooling that you've had in undergrad and leading up to that, learning all about the human body, about disease, about pharmacology, anatomy, and pathology. But your learning is still very confined to a classroom setting, to books, to exams. And when you finally get to the bedside in an independent capacity, like you're allowed to and required to in residency, that's where that book knowledge be, is really put into action. And I think it's exciting in that way. Um, and of course, the learning continues to be explosive in, in its pace throughout residency, as well as you build kind of a completely different skill set apart from what you learned in medical school. Yeah. So... Did you have like a, a favorite rotation when you were in residency? I mean, you obviously covered all of them, but was there one that you liked the most or one that you liked the least? I mean, in residency, my favorite rotation was the CCU, no doubt, the, the okay. cardiac intensive care unit. I really liked the fact that we were making uh, very high impact decisions, very quick decisions. If you start a medication, you're able to go to the bedside and see the effect on the patient immediately by looking on the monitor, seeing the blood pressure go up, the blood pressure go down, a change in heart rate or rhythm. I think when you're on the wards, on the internal medicine services or the hospitalist service, uh, you know, changes kind of happen more slowly. Things can transpire quickly, of course, but in the intensive care unit, I almost looked at each patient as kind of my own uh, experimental subject. You know, if I start this medication, what will happen? And Oh, we shouldn't have, have started that one or let's try this one. Um, so that was for sure my favorite rotation. And I think knowing that I wanted to go into cardiology also, that, that made sense. Another rotation that I really enjoyed was lifestyle medicine, which is, was an outpatient rotation where we were teaching people uh, healthy lifestyle habits, coaching them on uh, weight loss. Um, now we have better weight loss drugs than we had when I was uh, in residency. Uh, so I think that would be a, a really exciting one to go back and do now with all the injectables that are generating so much excitement in the field and in, in the popular culture. I'd say the least favorite rotations, I didn't particularly enjoy outpatient medicine. So I was only seeing five or six patients a day in an afternoon, and it was kind of pulling me away from the hospital. There were a couple people, patients that I built long-term relationships, but over the course of a two or three year internal medicine residency, you don't really get to know any of your clinic patients all that well. Mm -hmm. um, it's much different once you get into, into actual clinical practice where you're able to follow people for years or decades where you can build those uh, relationships that are a lot of fun. You know, you spend five minutes of a 15 minute or 20 minute visit talking about blood pressure or cholesterol, and you spend the, the remainder of the time talking about their vacation or their kids or <laughs> what they do on. Yeah. Well, I think it's great that the, you know, we find a lot in these conversations with providers that the heart of what they do, whether it's optometry, 
you know, cardiology, whatever it might be, is a relationship with their patients. So um, when you look at that, when you look back at your residency, um, let's say in the rotation of doing of cardiology, um, do you feel like there was anything in particular that you got from your fellow residents or from your attendings that, you know, was super beneficial to you as you went through that you might pass on to another resident? Let's say if you were, you know, giving a speech right now to a group of residents. So I was very fortunate where I trained at Northwestern downtown. Our faculty was uh, was quite varied. Uh, there were cardiologists and other specialists that I interacted with who spent the majority of their time in their lab doing research or doing clinical research and writing grants and writing papers and maybe only attended on service one or two months out of the year. And then we had clinical faculty who did almost no research. Um, so, and everything in between. So seeing the very, the various career paths of the, the different faculty, I think was invaluable to see like how, what are the various directions, the different directions that you could go in with this training once you finish it. And uh, I think this would be probably typical of most residency training programs as well, but the same thing uh, I had, colleagues from coast to coast. So there were people from Seattle, from LA, from New York, from Miami. We had a couple international people in our residency class. And just hearing uh, the variety of experiences that they brought to the table and hearing from my colleagues what they were going to do after training, uh, I think was inspirational. Nice. So when you look back to that, you know, you're nearing the end of your, um, you know, medical school, you're in looking to match, what was the match process like for you? Yeah, so for internal medicine, there's more positions available in internal medicine than there are in any other specialty that you might pursue after medical school. I think there's something like 11 or 12,000 uh, internal medicine residency positions throughout the country. And I don't know that all of them get filled necessarily. So internal medicine, itself is very highly in demand, uh, but it is not the most competitive specialty to match into when you compare it to things like dermatology or plastic surgery, or um, I'm trying to think of some other ones that are competitive now, but yeah. <laughs> I'm trying to talk to, about them on this program. But that being said, if you want to go and pursue a fellowship, you kind of need to be turn your gaze towards the more competitive internal medicine specialties. So I was very fortunate to match uh, at Northwestern. And I think I probably would have matched at, at, at another program had Northwestern not been my first choice. Uh, but you kind of need to get into one of those like upper tier academically focused uh, internal medicine programs in order to have success when it eventually comes time to apply and match into a fellowship program. So even though the specialty itself isn't super competitive. And then I'm like, oh, I, I know that I'm going to match into some internal medicine program somewhere. I really wanted to shoot as high as I could because I, I knew it was going to give me the best chance of success to go into cardiology. Nice. And then as you look at that, that fellowship, um, was there anything that, you know, really stood out that you felt like you did that maybe gave you an advantage or sort of a leg up as you prepared to match for a fellowship, as you prepared to like go on those interviews, et cetera? Yeah, so as you mentioned in your introduction, I do have 
a dual degree, MD and PhD. I spent an additional four years in medical school doing a substantial research project, uh, applying for and earning grants, publishing papers, abstracts, presenting. Um, and that really, I think, set me up for success on the fellowship interview trail and the fellowship match process. So where I matched uh, academic medicine and research is very highly prized and valued. So I think to anyone who has significant research experience under their belt, whether that's a master's, a PhD, or just a really substantial project that generated meaningful high impact papers, you're going to be given a leg up when it comes time for applying for fellowship. So as much as I was applying to programs and traveling and interviewing at programs, I almost felt like I was being recruited by them rather than, you know, asking to be let in. Yeah. So when you look back at your, you know, we talked about in the introduction, your educational experience and sort of what we might call a pedigree is really impressive. Um, what stood out to me was that you did the combined MD PhD program at the University of Illinois. I was wondering, how do you think that process differed from, say, if you had just gone the MD route? Yeah, so as I already mentioned, uh, the, first of all, the, the time is different. Uh, I think the national average for completing an MD-PhD program through the MSTP, the Medical Scientist Training Program, is about eight years, uh, whereas medical school is four years or maybe five years if you take a year to do uh, research or uh, master's in public health or something like that. So there's going to be a significant additional time commitment. Uh, there's a financial benefit, which is that medical school tuition is free. And most medical schools, I think, also waive fees. Uh, and then you're given a, a, a modest graduate student stipend. And depending on where you live, it could be as little as twenty-five dollars or $30,000 probably by today. Um, if you live in a more expensive area like New York City or maybe in the San Francisco area, it's a, a little bit more. Um, maybe not quite enough to live on or certainly not enough to live comfortably on, but you're going to graduate medical school with uh, significantly less uh, debt than the typical student. But that being said, I really wouldn't recommend anyone go down that path uh, unless they were truly passionate about research and, and seriously saw themselves becoming a physician scientist one day. Um, no amount of money, I think, is worth additional time out of your life if, if you're not enjoying the research process. So I think someone who has uh, significant experience or exposure to research uh, as an undergraduate who's had time in the lab, um, either over summers or significant time working in a lab during the school year, not someone who was just a tourist for a couple months or a few weeks out of the year. Um, that person should, should uh, seriously consider an MD-PhD program. Of course, I'm one to talk now because I'm in private practice. But yeah. <laughs> I think uh, going through it, I really enjoyed uh, the experimentation, the side of things I enjoyed. Uh, uh, writing papers and presenting, but ultimately I, I didn't see it for myself as a, as a career path as I near the end of my training. Nice. So it sounds like, you know, having a diversity of experiences, I think that's one other theme that we hear a lot about is that, you know, there's no direct path from A to B through residency, through fellowship, through matchings or any of it. I mean, it sounds like having some of that diversity really uh, benefited you given now that you've had both experiences. Um, when you look then at, 
you know, today in private practice, you know, talk about being a physician, physician scientist, does that still come through in your private practice or is it something that really does have a bear of, you know, separation between the two? Yeah, that's a great question. And some of the people who I've been friends with, or even my family have asked me, oh, you really won't be using your PhD after all. And I think that's kind of the wrong way to look at it. Um, For sure, I'm not in charge of a major research project or leading a lab, but any physician today, regardless of what your practice setting is, you're going to need to to read and digest the emerging scientific, uh, the basic science and the clinical science that's coming out of academia and some of it out of private sector. You're going to need to know how to read papers and how to incorporate the latest evidence into best practice. And I do think that people who have significant research experience, maybe not necessarily a PhD, but someone who knows about the research process is able to do that better than someone who doesn't. Uh, they can you can look at a paper and evaluate it on your own on its merits, not just see that, oh, it made it into some publication, so it must be good. Uh, but you can take a look at the methods, see the authors, see where it's come from, look at the data, and you can decide for yourself, hey, is this finding important? Is this finding, uh, you know, bullshit? Or yeah. is, am I incorporated into my practice? Am I gonna, trust uh, this new medication with this patient who's sitting in front of me? Or is it something I'm going to think twice about and say, hey, no, I don't think uh, the the science is quite there yet. We need to wait. Mm. Yeah, it sounds like, uh, you know, whether or not you do take that advice and go PhD, MD, or if you, you know, end up on either side of that, you're still going to end up using it and being able to benefit from that. And you made it a priority. So I think that that's something that um, really demonstrates the importance of being involved in research. Um, I know it's very standard for medical students, residents to publish research, to be a part of research teams. And so I'm glad to hear that it is something that kind of stays with providers as sort of part of a continuing education uh, spectrum. Yeah. And I think if you're involved in a, a meaningful project or you find a good lab or a good mentor, um, you're helping to find uh, new knowledge and you're contributing to discoveries that will push medicine forward. And whether or not you do that for the rest of your career or you only do that for a few years while you're a a graduate student or in residency, it's a meaningful pursuit. Nice. Um, So what do you think, you know, whether in, I guess this could be for either residency or for fellowship, but what do you think are three like off the top of your head, three important questions that a resident should ask uh, their attending as they're considering what your goal, what your career path is, or maybe what they would ask as they get into fellowship as they start seeing patients and learning the particulars of, of what their fellowship is going to be. Do you mean three questions about that attending's Just, career path, or? Yeah, I mean, I guess I'm, what I'm thinking about is if I were a resident and I were there on day one, you know, and I've matched and I'm I'm ready to hit the ground running and I'm thinking of all the things I've just learned from Dr. Leahy on this podcast, what are maybe like, maybe what's one or two questions you would ask as the resident, like something you wish, I guess, if you look back that you wish you had asked or you had thought about, you know, on day one, that first week as you were getting to know your team and what it was like to be in that residency. Yeah, I think uh, I can actually think of two questions that I often asked uh, the higher ups that I worked with, you know, one was what, drew you into this profession, into the position that you are currently in, in your line of work? And uh, what for what reason do you stay? I remember asking that a lot during residency training and even on the residency interview trail or the fellowship uh, interview trail. I think it's 
uh, very informative and uh, to get each and each person their own take, you know, what, mm -hmm. what drew this institution or what drew you to this particular specialty and why do you continue to stay? Nice. I think that's really great because I think it does give an opportunity for, you know, if it's all about continuing education, seeing yourself in that success, um, being able to hear from the people who have it, what it is like day to day for them to experience it every day, to you know, have to make that choice every day to keep being the kind of provider they are. While we talk about that, what's an average day like for you, like a good day in your practice? So my favorite days, I think, are where my roles are kind of varied and I wear different hats. Uh, for, for me right now, that day is Thursday. <laughs> yeah. So I'll start, I'll start the day uh, in the cath lab, assisting with various procedures by being in the rooms, provide imaging support for um, our structural heart disease specialists in the group, uh, treating valvular heart disease and putting in Watchman devices, which are devices that prevent stroke in people who can't tolerate blood thinners. And then mm -hmm. That's followed by a little bit of inpatient rounding. So seeing new consults as well as some follow-up consults on our service. And then Thursday afternoons, I'm in clinic from noon until five. And in between seeing follow-up and new patients in my clinic, reading either stress tests or I'm reading echoes. So Thursday, man, Thursday is the best day. <laughs> <laughs> but no, I mean, to your point, uh, one of the reasons that I was so attracted to cardiology is we do get to wear a lot of hats. We don't do one thing over and over and over again. And, you know, I won't name other, on other specialties, but there are some <laughs> orthopedics that, uh, <laughs> yeah, I was love to do, you know, an entire week of knee replacements, where it's just one knee replacement lined up after another. And it's very efficient, yeah. very lucrative. Um, but that would be uh, very mind numbing for me. I like to get to wear a lot of different hats. I like to be, a proceduralist. I like to spend time at the bedside for patients that are in the hospital who can be very sick sometimes, talking to them and talking to their families. And then I like the longitudinal uh, relationships that are provided by clinic. People, like I said, where for five or 10 minutes of the visit, you're talking about their medical problems. And for the remainder of the time, you're just shooting the shit and checking in with them. Yeah. Nice. When you look at, you know, where you've started from and obviously having a personal connection to the field you're in now and um, everything you've gone through, the dual MD, PhD, your fellowship, everything now being in practice, how has your idea of career success changed since, you know, as you were starting out either in medical school or residency? Yeah, that's a really great question. And you alluded to pedigree earlier. And I think that uh, like many people who were pre-med or in medical school or in residency or fellowship. For a long time, I associated my own success uh, with what my pedigree would look like. You know, I want to get into this type of um, dual degree program. I want to publish in this journal because it's got a high impact factor. I want to present at this conference. I want to go to this internal medicine program because it's highly ranked by this and this cardiology. And I think by the time I got towards the end of my training, and certainly after my first year or two in practice, um, my focus has shifted a lot away from that. I mean, it's certainly wonderful to have a great pedigree and be trained at all the, the high, highly ranked places. It'll open a lot of doors. Um, but at the end of the day, I think that now I define my success as a combination of you know my own 
personal happiness and satisfaction and also the smiles on the faces of the people that I treat. If I'm bettering people's lives and uh, putting them at ease and, and making them feel better, making them live longer, um, you know, it might sound uh, trite, and, uh, <laughs> a little, you know, uh, sen sentimental, but I, I, I think that that's how I would define it now. Yeah. I think that's good. I think it lays a good foundation for longe longevity of practice, because if you're putting the importance of not only relationships, like has been a big theme of our conversation today, but also of getting to know people and, and making sure that you are uh, meeting them where they're at. I think that, uh, you know, that's something that any provider would be lucky to have and use as a guide. So I'm really glad that that defines your idea of success. As we shift over, um, you know, I wanted to kind of just talk to you a little bit about the future of cardiology and heart care and all the things, you know, because research and, and making sure that people are able to really actively prevent cardiovascular disease is a big part of, of um, your experience and what you believe in. So um, I wanted to ask, what are like, just off, first of all, what are three tips that you would give any resident listener or whatever um, for like heart healthy behavior? You mentioned already about like physical exercise, but are there just one or two other tips that you would give as people look to like really make sure that they're laying good groundwork for prevention? And you're talking about for themselves, correct? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, oh my gosh. You know, I was in a, a board meeting with one of my colleagues uh, a, a week or two ago and he recommended a book entitled Why We Sleep. And I thought it was hilarious that he would recommend that book to me while we were coming up with our call schedule where we're deciding <laughs> on all of the nights in the coming year that we're <laughs> that we're not going to um if you find uh the time you gotta you gotta prioritize sleep i don't know how you know whether it's living as close to the hospital as possible whether it's um you know cutting out television or what but you gotta get at least six hours of sleep a night i don't know how you're gonna function outside of that um sleep deprivation has all sorts of um of health uh, consequences, both in the near and short term. I think there was a lot of interest in this from a research standpoint uh, when it was coming out decades ago about like work hour restrictions and kind of the inhumane conditions of medical training programs of intern mm -hmm. um, You know, the propensity to make medical errors goes up when someone is sleep deprived. And then long term, I think it's just horrible for your cardiovascular health. So some somehow find a way to uh, to maintain sleep habits. Um, and along with that, I would say physical activity is, is really important. And you might not have time to get that away from the hospital. Uh, but if you can find time during your day, during the training to, to get your steps in, um, some of my attendings love to take the stairs in between uh, floors when we, I, I think that has a double pronged effect. I think you get steps in and you can get your heart rate up a little bit. And also it tends to be faster than using the elevator bays in many hospitals as I found. Um, so yeah. find a way to not be sitting at a desk all day uh, for Unfortunate reasons. I think medicine is now a, a specialty that is, is very tied to the computer, to the desk, but find time to get away, to stand up and get away from the computer and get on your feet. Yeah. Yeah. I think um, the next thing I want to ask you about really is about sort of the future. Uh, you know, you're involved in um, taking care of people today. You've talked a lot about having a lasting relationship with them. And um, as we look towards the future of cardiovascular care, as some of your research, you know, if you call on that, um, 
What do you see as like your vision, you know, as a provider for cardiovascular care? I mean, is it a world where everyone, you know, we eliminate it and it's something that is manageable? Um, is there any kind of particular vision that you're coming up with as you meet with patients every day, as you're seeing them, you know, heal and learn and grow and, and face this disease? Yeah, I think it's a great question. And, um, you know, I think it's all about lifestyle. Uh, we offer cardiac rehab in one of the hospitals where I spend the most of my time and that we have a gym essentially. It's got cardio equipment, there's machines, there's free weights. I go in there um, probably two or three times a month and, and see some of my patients and some of my colleagues' patients that are there participating in rehab. Um, I've gotten on the treadmill sometimes, I've lifted weights there. So <laughs> I thought <laughs> the aim at this point was to be kind of like a soul cycle instructor in the hospital or to be some sort of personal trainer and, and exercise with my patients, I, that is not panning out. I'm not having the time <laughs> to do that. But, um, you know, I think uh, emphasizing uh, physical activity and that aspect of a healthy lifestyle is something that, you know, I, I try to uh, exhibit myself and it really impress upon my patients. Um, and in a similar vein, I think uh, one of the frontiers now for cardiology. I don't know really how comfortable some of my colleagues are prescribing these new injectable weight loss medications, but I find myself prescribing them more and more. Mm -hmm. I don't think it would necessarily be uh, strictly under the umbrella of endocrinology or of a weight loss specialist. So Ozempic, Wegovi, Manjaro, um, the new generation that's going to be coming onto the market in the next couple of years will blow this current generation away, I think. Um, and I think that we really need to get on top of uh, the, the obesity epidemic, honestly. And uh, it's a big driver of cardiovascular risk factors, of cardiovascular disease, to say nothing of a lot of other medical problems and comorbidities down the road. Um, so for me... You know, I'd love to have every single one of my patients exercise two to three hours a week to be a healthy weight, to eat a Mediterranean, a Mediterranean or a vegan diet. Um, and I will die trying, even though I think <laughs> currently in Western culture, I tell people, you know, the deck is stacked against you. There's a lot of unhealthy food all around you, but mm -hmm. try to make try to make changes where you can. And for all the fancy techniques, uh, technologies that we have in cardiology to diet treat heart disease, still the most powerful tool and option that we can offer people is prevention. So preventing that first heart attack, uh, preventing heart failure before it stops. Uh, that's where we get the most bang for our buck. Yeah. Would you say then that the like medications like you talked about, you know, the developments that are coming would blow the current ones out of the water? You have your Wagovi and your Ozempic. Would you say that that's what you're most excited about when you look at like future advancements in care? I, I I think that's probably what I'm the most excited about now. I think there needs to be some meaningful changes in progress on the front of cost and access. Right now, that's the huge difficult that we face. Even if we can find the supply, it's difficult to get insurance to cover it. I think, you know, anecdotally, probably many people who are using it, it's not really indicated for. It's just people who want to look a little bit better, better in a bathing yeah. suit. Um, which, you know, is the unfortunate uh, reality of the healthcare system and, and pharma as it currently stands. Um, 
but more and more data is coming out about these medications. There was just a study released a couple of weeks ago. I can't remember which journal it was, but showed cardiovascular benefit uh, for people who were on semaglutide for, I think it was uh, the follow-up was like two or three years. So, you know, these drugs were first developed as diabetes drugs, and now they're then they're being heralded as weight loss drugs. And I do think that we're gaining an appreciation for their ability to, to prevent cardiovascular disease as well. Yeah. I mean, I think it has to be something that we all can be grateful for, which is that, you know, science, uh, modern medical care continues to advance and allow people to overcome disease, overcome pain, suffering, et cetera. So um, I think that's definitely something to be excited about. One thing I wanted to ask, um, we, so I, had, I asked a, a friend of mine, a sort of a, a resident who's considering going into um, cardiology themselves, and they wanted to know, you know, shifting back to your everyday practice, what made you decide in versus outpatient? You talked a little bit about wanting, you know, to have your connection back to the hospital, but what was it that really, you know, helped you decide whether you wanted to be inpatient or outpatient? So for a cardiologist, there's not really a decision to be inpatient or outpatient. I think I alluded to earlier, you know, my ideal, my ideal day, Thursday, the day where I get to wear the most hats and it's a combination yeah. of an outpatient practice for me. Cardiology, uh, it, it will always be a combination of seeing patients in the clinic, outpatient, and seeing patients in the hospital, whether they're admitted with acute decompensated heart failure or they're admitted uh, because they're undergoing bypass surgery and they need a cardiologist to see them before and after the surgery. Um, I don't know of any cardiologists that, that either are purely in the clinic or purely in the hospital. Um, there are, are other specialties, certainly um, hospitalist medicine, which is something that has become very in vogue in the last, I think, 10, mm -hmm. 15 are internal medicine trained doctors who purely have a, a, a practice inside hospitals, seeing admitted patients. They have no clinic. Uh, for me, I think that kind of robs you of some of the rewarding aspects of building those longitudinal long-term relationships with patients, but it has other ad uh, advantages, which is the lifestyle can be a lot better. When you're not on in the hospital, you are not on. They're not calling mm -hmm. you. No reason to call the hospitalist when the hospitalist is at home for the week. Um, there's another hospitalist who's on call and admitting. Um, it's different when you have patients that you see once or twice or three times a year. Yeah. Okay. So it sounds like the best advice then would be, you know, if you're going to go the route that of career success that you have found, it's be comfortable both in and outpatient that you're not going to have to worry about deciding one or the other and that your, you know, focus priority would have to be split between both because that's really where you're called to be. Absolutely. And I think kind of to play on that a little bit, internal medicine is just a really great uh, residency and specialty right out of medical school, I think, because it offers so many options down the road for you as a, a budding physician. You know, you could stop after three years and be a well-trained internist, and you could practice either outside the hospital and have a, a clinic-based practice, or you could be a hospitalist and do purely inpatient, or you could decide to go into any number of specialties, some of which are mainly clinic, like something like rheumatology. Uh, they do not have a lot of inpatient responsibility. Um, or you could go into something like what I do, which offers the, you know, many hats, inpatient, outpatient, procedures, not procedures. Um, mm -hmm. Gastroenterology is kind of like that. They they do a lot of procedures, um, infectious disease, 
probably more inpatient than outpatient. Although if you have, um, you know, in your practice area, a lot of people who have HIV and you're managing their antiviral medications, maybe you do more outside the hospital. But it's almost like if you go and match in internal medicine, you you don't have to have had made up your mind about anything for your future career trajectory because you you will still be very well poised to go down any number of paths as you get to the end of that three-year training. I think that's great advice. All right. Well, I think we've had a really great conversation. I want to just, uh, before we wrap up, I want to say thank you so much for you know giving us this insight that you've offered. Um, while we look at sort of winding the conversation and I thought we get a little less technical and just kind of ask you a couple of rapid fire questions off the top of your head. Um, feel free to, you know, uh, answer them as you would. Uh, it's kind of like the, uh, you won't have any lifelines or be able to pass any of them, but I promise you're not that hard. Uh, so if you were not, uh, you know, a doctor, if you're not a medical science or anything like that, what would you do? DJ. <laughs> DJ. Awesome. Technical. I like that. Very cool. Well, you talked a lot about physical exercise. Like, what, what's your favorite exercise? Something that people could maybe be inspired to do to keep that shape up? Uh, downhill skiing, but that's not uh, sustainable as uh, a <laughs> unless you are fortunate enough to be a student or train at, like, the University of Utah or somewhere in Colorado. <laughs> um, yeah. Right now, my I think my favorite routine is uh, 10 to 15 minutes of cardio as a warm-up and then 30 to 45 minutes of uh, heavier lifting. Nice. Um, so the last couple questions then. So, you you know, obviously doing having a good base in research and making that a priority, you probably read a lot. Um, is, you know, one thing you're reading that you want to share now, one thing you're reading that is uh, for fun and one that you're reading for uh, sort of business and, and, and to advance your um, work knowledge? Yeah, so I have a pretty sizable commute. I spend about two hours in the car every day. So books on tape have become my friend. Uh, yeah. I've I had nothing against podcasts. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, uh, and podcasts, no, hopefully. So uh, for fun, I'm uh, rereading for like the eighth or ninth time Wuthering Heights on my morning commute. And the afternoon commute, I am reading that uh, audio book, Why We Sleep. Uh, which is equal parts fascinating and horrifying for someone who often gets very little sleep. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, I have to put that one on my list uh, with caution. Um, well, you know, so like I said, I, I want to thank you again for taking the time to join us. Is there, uh, if someone wanted to reach out to you to maybe, you know, hear a little bit more about your experience or, or follow up on any of your advice, is there a best place for them to, to reach you? Yeah, absolutely. Feel free to uh, send out my gmail address and i can answer uh questions or comments that people have perfect great well dr Leahy, thank you so much for taking the time to join us as i said your thought leadership and being able to share your knowledge and insight perspective with future medical students future residents i think not only does a great service to them right now but uh will give great service to that longevity we've talked about about making sure that our providers keep uh, relationships at the base of what they do, which is what you have done, and uh, dedicate themselves in the way that you have uh, to make sure that they are fully prepared to meet their patients. So thank you so much. Thank you to all of our listeners. This and every episode of Prescribing Your Career Success is brought to you by Provider First Recruiting. Provider First isn't just our name, it's our commitment. We believe that by putting the provider first in the hiring process, we guarantee top-tier talent and ultimately make a positive impact on patient care. When providers are the priority in the hiring process, they're able to focus their attention on patient care and on building their practice. 
Provider First Recruiting is your personal one-on-one trusted advisor, whether you're hiring world-class providers or looking for your ideal practice experience.